This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am currently sitting outside of a property right now. We're just doing a staging consultation. It is pouring rain. But the good news, we've got Francis Beulah on the show today. Francis Beulah, back, fan favorite, past guest. I think I did that backwards. So great to have her back on the show. She actually is in the studio. I think last time we had her over the phone, we had her back because... For a few reasons. One is, is Francis Buell is a legend in the city of Vancouver, a legendary journalist force the past decades in Vancouver. But secondly, she wrote an article for BC Business about real estate trends that we're talking about today. But we don't just talk about real estate trends in the city of Vancouver, of course, because Francis has her finger on the pulse. We talk politics, we talk planning, we talk South Falls Creek. And, you know, having Francis in the studio is just a great conversation. Always enjoy having Francis come by and lots of laughs, great conversation. I think we run a little bit long on this episode, but it's packed with useful information. And of course, we're talking to her definitely about the upcoming municipal elections. I mean, we're 2022, we're going to have a potentially a new mayor or potentially the same mayor in the city of Vancouver, but it's very interesting to get her take on the candidates. And yeah, I mean, she, she's not one to hold back. She's got opinions and it definitely comes through in the episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a fantastic conversation. If you're interested in the shape that Vancouver will take, both in terms of real estate related and just in terms of 
what the city's going to look like in the future. I think Francis, there's nobody better than Francis Beulah. So stay tuned for that. But what else do we have before we cut to our talk with Francis Beulah, Adam? We are sponsored this week by Oakland Realty. That is our brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody looking just to make a change in the industry and, and looking for a great culture, dynamic place to be, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only will you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, you get a huge incentive for typing in VRP 2020. So don't forget. Yeah, for sure, Matt. And the other thing I just want to mention before we cut to our chat with Francis is we did have a technical glitch last week. We did send out an episode with Robinson Smith, which was fantastic, and Kyle Green, Ace Mortgage Broker, Kyle Green, I should say. Ace Mortgage and Robinson Smith, the son of the founder of the Smith Maneuver. Yeah, exactly. And that was a previously recorded show. So uh, we wanted to put it back out in place of an episode which will be coming out next week, which we're really excited about, eight ways to find a deal in the Vancouver real estate market. So stay tuned to that. Tons of useful information. But without further ado, Matt, why don't we cut to our conversation with Francis? Absolutely. Francis Buell on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Nothing better. Hope everyone enjoys. Okay, so we're here with Francis Beulah. How you doing, Francis? I am not looking forward to winter, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should say past guest, fan favorite. Thanks so much for taking the time, Francis. Maybe can we start with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? I think most people will will know who you are, but... Sure. So I have been covering city hall politics and urban issues for about 20 seven years now, mostly in Vancouver, although I do venture a bit further sometimes. I write primarily for the Globe and Mail, but I'm currently also doing a fair bit with BC Business, and I have a little real estate column there and uh, for various other things. But yeah, my big focus is cities and how they function, and I love them, but they're crazy and confusing and interesting. And, and then I am a person who lives in the city, so I live in East Van. I, with a house that requires constant, constant rodent <laughs> upkeep, uh, and I have one son and three stepkids, and they all have housing issues. We built a laneway house last year for my husband's oldest daughter and her husband and three kids, which I wrote a series about and was the most popular story I think I've ever written in my whole life. Really? Yeah. And, you know, one son just bought a condo, a small condo on Kingsway. So that was a process. And then the two others are renters. And that's a whole process. And I think them. you, did you not write about, or was this just on Twitter, trying to find a rental? I remember at one point you were commenting yes. on that process as well. Yeah. Well, because as various relatives look for rentals, I'm the kind of person, oh, I can help you. Let me plunge <laughs> into this new world. And so I was out on Craigslist and Facebook looking at rentals and becoming increasingly horrified. Plus, I have a basement suite that I just decided to rent out at below market so that I could help out someone in a bad housing situation. So I got to make a Sophie's Choice among two dozen people for that. That was horrifying. Oh. I never want to do that again. So, so that is me. And I live on a bike route, and uh, but I still drive a car. 
So you sound like Adam. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. very similar. I was going to say so my, my F one fifty on the bike route. No, just kidding. <laughs> Well, it sounds like there's almost no one better to comment on real estate for BC business because, I mean, you're living all the pain points. I am of living. The city. That's an excellent way of putting it. I am living all the pain points. Like we are constantly, how much can we pull out of our whatever line of credit or or whatever to help finance something? What can we do for our kids? What do we do about this house? Should we be thinking about downsizing? You know, all of those things that uh, most people in this city are grappling with. Right, right. And and just thinking about very quickly, or or maybe not so quickly, the series that you wrote about building the laneway, we were talking before we went live, but that was, it was, sounds like it was a, a painful a painful process. It was. I mean, there was an extreme pain. It was more like a dull ache for, you know, five years. Uh, I mean, there was never anything like super dramatic. It was always just these little things. Oh, by the way, you get to be the first person who gets charged or is required to put in a bigger sump because they just changed the regulation. So that'll be another 10000 Right. Oh, and by the way, you know, and then it would be some other thing. So, yeah, that was really quite an experience. And I was told by some city people sort of behind the scenes, well, it was a little unfair that you wrote about your process that took five years because you're in a special zone and most laneway houses, it's much shorter than that. But really, I keep hearing from other people, no, there's always something that goes wrong. Right. Yeah. All the other people that had a great experience building in Vancouver, <laughs> yet to yeah. meet those people. But uh... yeah, no, it was really interesting to go through it so firsthand because I'd heard stories like this for 20 years. And with people saying it was actually getting way worse in the last few years because more regulations have been piled on. And there's 17 departments that weigh in on every development application, but no one who's sort of saying, okay, how are we going to move this through? It just can get mired in these, you know, debates or requirements of all these different departments who are all trying to do their best, but they all have a different mandate. Right. So, no, it, and it makes you realize this is not some, like, yuppie bourgeois, like, I didn't get good service from the city kind of thing. This affects life in Vancouver for mm -hmm. many, many people. Right. Well, and I just think we had a a guest on not long ago talking about net zero by 2032, which I think is just the... Net zero building. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I don't know if it just seems like you definitely need to move that way, but just layering more and more uh, in terms of requirements. It well, just yeah. Seems like and it's, it's, if it's not, you have to figure out what the priority is and what, you know, good people at the city said it's the problem is every department feels that they've been told to accomplish this or that and they're trying to do it and you don't have anyone at the head of it saying okay we do want to do all these things but we can't do them all right so rather than stall an entire project because you can't get landscaping and engineering to agree on something we, there needs to be an executive decision about what the priority is and if the priority is net zero great Let's all do that. But you can't do everything else at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see. There's a new head of planning who's trying to fix it all. She keeps bringing in new reports every month about like trimming this, you know, 
part of the permitting system and that part. So we'll see what happens if there's any difference. Well, one of the reasons we wanted to have you back, Francis, and it's always good, I feel like, just getting a, a check-in on the state of everything yeah, is, is kind of one of the reasons. But, oh, okay. Wow, you've come to the right that's person. The, that's the title of this episode, by the way. State of everything. But you recently wrote, and it was a fairly lengthy article in BC Business about the state of real estate in British Columbia post-pandemic mm-hmm. or, or... Mid-pandemic, mid-pandemic or wherever Yeah, we wherever, wherever we, uh, we are. And one of the things that jumped out at me was in the headline, I don't know if you come up with the headlines yourself, but the BC property market is reinventing itself during COVID. And I just, yeah, I'd I'd love to hear more about what you mean by reinventing itself. Well, yeah, I mean, because there were all kinds of trends that were evident even before the pandemic, and then the pandemic really escalated them. So, you know, I know a lot of people don't think industrial real estate is very interesting, but It is. It should be to them because it's where all their stuff that they order online sits in industrial land somewhere before it gets there. And so the pandemic really accelerated the demand for industrial land because you need distribution and you need warehousing and you need manufacturing for the different kinds of things that people wanted, bicycles and suddenly all this outdoor equipment and patio stuff and, you know, everything that you couldn't buy for a few months. So huge demand for industrial. And so you are starting to see as a result something that for decades, literally, developers have been saying, no, we can't do this, but multi-story industrial buildings, you know, reinventing themselves, trying to figure out how to get more room out of the very limited industrial land base we have. So that kind of thing. When it comes to office, and I don't have to tell you this, you're in an office, you know the debate that's going on about, is everyone going to come back to the kind of office work situation that they used to have? And no one really knows yet. Everyone's waiting to see, because this is a mass thing that's playing out with every company making a slightly different decision. But, you know, a lot of people are talking about reinventing offices, not as cubicle farms where people just come to work. You know, you have to report for work. So visually, I can see that you're there typing. They're going to be these meeting and collaboration places And maybe there's a desk if you need a place to work away from your toddlers at home or or whatever, but that you would only book for a couple of days a week or three days a week. So there's a reinvention of what office might look like. Sadly, not reinventing residential housing too much yet. And that's (laughs) one of the problems I think everybody feels that not just Vancouver or BC or Canada is facing, but you are hearing this in so many places, all through the states, many European countries, all kinds of things. A sense that the the housing system that we had post-war to about maybe 1992,000 was kind of working okay. It seemed to work. And now it's broken. House prices are going up like crazy. In the States, they're particularly seeing this financialization, like big investors, like buying up houses to rent out to people because their annual reports say, hey, there's a a gigantic housing supply. Housing is just going to keep getting more expensive. Great investment for us. And that's where we're not seeing a lot of reinvention. People are 
sort of struggling with the current system to figure out how to make it work a little better. And that's, that's not solving anything from what anyone can see. Just thinking, because I know in that piece you talked to actually a, a number of past guests on our show, but it was a fairly, it looked like the the level of research and reporting. I'm just wondering, have you talked to anyone who's got kind of like the ideas person there on the residential side in terms of actually kind of looking at where we're at, how things have changed and how residential can kind of get yeah. unbroken? I have to say the ideas people tend to be very big picture. And you're seeing a debate throughout North America and a lot of cities where there's sort of one group that just says, just build, just build, 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 change the laws, force cities to like start accommodating new housing. You can call it the YIMBY movement or whatever you want. But, you know, California in particular, they're starting to pass legislation. I think Oregon did too, for example, saying in residential zones, what were normally single-family residential zones, you can now build anything up to a fourplex or a sixplex. It varies in different places. So you have one group that's doing that, and another group that's arguing more from a, we have to keep the institutional investors out, you know, the banking system is a problem, zoning is a problem. Well, actually, the zoning people, that's the other side, but they're more sort of concerned about the investors who are in the system. In Vancouver, we hear a lot about the foreign investors. In the States, it's not so much that. It's sort of big institutional investors. But they're focused more on there's this these forces, these investment forces that are somehow driving up the price of real estate. And if you fix them, then things will be better. The supply side people say the reason those investors are moving in is because there's not enough supply. Right. So prices are going up. So and then the other side says, no, if you just get rid of them, then you won't need so much supply. <laughs> so there's this kind of weird, unproductive debate that's going on that's not we haven't seen enough from either side to say, you know, whose solution is going to work in all of this when it comes to ideas like. There's little ideas here and there about, you know, Los Angeles, for example, has created a few laneway house designs, but, you know, kind of off the shelf designs, really simple, like nice modernist looking things to make it easier to build what they call an ADU, accessory dwelling unit, you know, as a way of trying to speed up that process. And they're really thinking that if they can get a lot of people to add this I mean, a thousand units is a thousand units, you know, and if you can get people to put that in their backyards and make it simple for them, that's great. You're seeing little things here and there where different levels of government are trying to facilitate housing or force it, force cities to accommodate it. But in terms of great ideas, I'm not seeing it. Right. You know, because it's a big, complicated system and everyone comes up with their own particular narrative about how they think it works. I'm sure, you know, your narrative is different from mine, is different from others. Like, it's so big and unknowable right. in some ways that everyone comes up with their own story about how it's working. Do you think that, like, people fleeing density and a lot of people going, like, the Fraser Valley has been incredibly busy since COVID started. A lot of people looking for more space, looking for more yard space. Do you think that's actually going to have a negative impact on on housing in Vancouver, the buying trends right now? I mean, 
you know, what do I know? I repeat what everyone else says. But what everyone else says is, no, that that was just an acceleration of a thing that happens all the time. What big cities do is a lot of people come, especially if they're a university city as Vancouver is, they come when they're in their 20s, they hang around for a while, some of them end up staying in the city, and then some move out to Chilliwack, to, you know, Kelowna, to Victoria, whatever. That's a natural thing that happens with cities. The bathtub fills up and then the bathtub overflows and that's the way it goes. So what happened during the pandemic was you saw a big move out of all those people who were probably planning to do that anyway, but they decided now is the time to do it. And you didn't have the bathtub filling up again because the students and the new immigrants and the people from other cities, there was a real slowdown in that. So I don't think that that pattern is going to change. Cities are always going to be these big receptacles of floods of people coming in. What I'm really curious about is whether there might not be a more of a dispersal of working throughout the region so that more people feel they can move out because wherever it is they're asked to work is either closer by or they, if it's further away, they only have to go there two days a week. So that would, you know, set the stage for people to move out. And also the suburbs are kind of cooler than they used the, to be. Right? I was going right. to say, so the, yeah. the, it's interesting. You kind of have different scenarios in that piece, right? Mm-hmm. Like here's, and it would be, it, it would be great to, I don't know if it, conversationally makes sense to go through each one. But one thing that strikes me is we, you know, we both live in Vancouver and we operate our business in Vancouver, but we had a friend who was, we sold something in Langley like a couple of years ago for a friend and we're never out there. And I actually did an open house out there. And <laughs> Matt had to use his How Google Maps. It, no, <laughs> Google here, Maps here, to find it. It was in Newark Condo. And it, here's what I was going to say. It's like little notes, right? Like yes. in this community that was fairly Starbucks. new. There was, yeah, I was like, okay, there's a grocery store. There's a bank. Like you wouldn't, you could probably get by doing 80% of what you need to do in this, this village that they've created. Right. I can't even remember what it was called, but your scenario, one younger gentleman who had an office in Gastown moved out to wherever, somewhere. Langley. Langley. He, went, he lived in Langley. So he shut down his Gastown office. He was working at home. All his employees were working at home. And then when he felt like he needed an office to get away from the toddlers, he just got a temporary rent an office nearby. Yeah. Right. So then his his life, and this is kind of an example, right? Mm-hmm. His life is he now lives in presumably one of those little nodes yeah. or villages. And there's whatever, a hundred of those little villages all over the place. And, yes. and he's not making, it's not the center of the city is where everybody's mm-hmm. going. That's it. That's like an interesting idea <laughs> yeah. to right. think of and how I mean, that changes things. And I think it does. And I think, again, that's a trend that's been happening for a while. The suburbs have been getting more texture to them. They've been getting their own interesting little shops. They've been developing little high streets. Like I went out to Chilliwack for twice during the pandemic. I hadn't been there ever before, I don't think. And I know like a number of younger people who've moved out there because they either are teleworking or they're only commuting in a couple days a week. And it's got a kind of a interesting developing little high street. It's got a fantastic bookstore, a couple of nice restaurants, a brew pub that everybody talks about, some great hikes nearby. 
And you can see people going, okay, well, if I got a job in Surrey, this wouldn't be so far a commute, especially if it was only two or three days. And this is a nice place to live. And so you can see that you're going to get sort of a larger metro area with these constellations, these little hubs, as mm-hmm. you as you talk about them. That's possible now because, you know, people, one of the things that attracted people back to the city in the 80s was the sense that the suburbs were sterile and monotonous and homogenous and they're not like that anymore. Right, right. I mean, my God, like Surrey, if you want great Indian food or great African food, you go out to Surrey. So they're more interesting than they used to be. And if they develop work hubs and shopping hubs, you know, I don't think, and that's a good thing. Like, unfortunately, we, again, people polarize on this and they think everyone should live in the city because in in dense things or everyone should go and live in a, you know, house with a picket fence in the suburbs. And really, the idea is everyone has choices and maybe different choices at different periods in their life. Well, Well, the other trend that you highlight is people shutting down their gas town offices. So maybe we can talk about that at the end of the show when we cover municipal politics. Yeah. <laughs> or is that just John Stovell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. At least I'm, and I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but we've talked a lot on this show about, okay, what does, how deep is the scar from COVID? How long mm-hmm. does it take for everybody to come back? And I, we've always kind of been like, all right, it will, you know, at least in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, everybody wants to get back to the way it was. But that example, his, like, first of all, the guy from Gastown, you know, that hmm. appeared to be doing something interesting for work, hip guy that probably likes craft beer, him moving out there mm-hmm. and his friends, like it actually creates a community, you know, that didn't potentially exist before and and maybe actually change the course of how people view the city. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, um, it, you know, I think the biggest question for a lot of people in all of this is for what purposes do we need to have people together when they're working and when do we not need it? And I think everyone's trying to figure out all of that. And it's very hard because there's there is this real compulsion by employers to sort of visibly want to see their employees working the visual management, someone called it. And so to break out of that, is is that really going to happen? Or will people kind of snap back to, I just want to see them. I want to make sure they're not freelancing for someone halfway (laughs) around the world (laughs) while they're allegedly working at home for me. So that's going to be a fascinating thing to see and i and i think it's going to play out differently in different industries if you're in a hugely huge demand sector you're going to be able to negotiate something different from someone else uh right. and then certain jobs of course you just have to be physically present for it yeah so i feel like i have no sense because everyone's making such personal individual decisions and like in that story as you were saying There were four different scenarios. The guy who shuts down his gas town office and moves to Langley and his employees scatter. Best Buy, who decided to move out of South Burnaby Industrial Park and into Olympic Village. Right. But a smaller place. Right. So they and but that's kind of a hybrid model that they're moving towards, if I understood. And then TELUS, which has been promoting like sort of remote working for a long time, going even further along that. And then a law firm I talked to, or it's like kind of the same, but some people can work remotely part of the time if they want. Although 
I've since talked to other law firms who say, oh, no, we can't get paralegals to come in here for a lover money. If we don't offer them telework, they just quit. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. I think because they're lower paid, right? And they're so they're living further out. So the commute is a much bigger deal for them right. than the higher paid lawyers who can live closer in. So, you know, it's all going to work out in very different ways, like depending on people's personalities, the sector, as I say, you know, what the big boss decides is okay, you know, because that often is what drives so many decisions. And we've seen that before, like people lobby for a four-day week, it goes into place, and then the boss says, oh, this is very inconvenient because I couldn't get hold of so-and-so on Friday, so four-day week is now canceled. Right. So it's often the executives of those organizations who make decisions based on what personally they like is right. a common pattern. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, like we were just talking about how the suburbs are becoming uh, much trendier places to live. And one thing about this trend is you, you think like with people moving out there, you often think about the the transplants moving to like, you know, the Sunshine Coast or areas that are a bit more kind of beautiful, quiet, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And then they demand what the nice <laughs> niceties that they had while they lived in the city, right? You see mm -hmm. the coffee shops, the trendy coffee shops, the smoothie shops or whatever that open around it or the small stores and restaurants. Presumably the the suburbs are going to be the beneficiaries in the sense that they're just going to continue to get better and better I think if, so. if people are leaving the city for a longer period of time as well. I right? think so. I, because, you know, people are being priced out of the city and they're going to the suburbs, but they want some of the city amenities. And right. so that's why you're seeing the growth of interesting places in North Van or Steveston Village or Port Modi, you know, around the inlet, all kinds of things like that. And that's been a conversation we've had around like just where the development is going. Yeah. It's, it's not as amenity rich as say the city where we're not seeing as much development. But um, it's not like when we grow up in the, you know, right. Well, you guys grew up a few decades later than me. Well, but. well no, but <laughs> I, I was actually, th I was actually thinking this. So from kind of long historical trends though, you know, flight to the suburbs in the fifties, sixties, seventies, 80s, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then we have the pushback to the city for the most part and, yeah. and towards kind of urban living. Yeah, and kind now, of young boomers who think the city's hip and they're willing to move back into the old houses and fix them and up. Then, right. And then now we're seeing potentially a flight to the suburbs, but I'm even just thinking from like car culture, environmental, gridlock, maybe not the same, right? Because it's a flight potentially back to the suburbs where... People stay there. And, or not and even are a not... flight, but like a resorting. So people who want to be in the city will be. And there is a whole trend of every year there's more people who live in Vancouver and commute out. Right. Yeah. So. Try I, going over one of those bridges. I feel like it's it's hard to gauge yeah. people. It's not like everybody's going back to North Van anymore. Yeah. And I remember once I talked to this guy at a dog park. It had nothing to do with housing. It was all about dog poop. Uh, but he was a longshoreman who works at the Delta Port, but he lives in Olympic Village because he wants to be in a cool urban place. Right. His job is whatever, however many kilometers away, you know, so he's yeah. commuting out. And that's, I think you're going to see that kind of thing. People who want to be in the city and who like dense living and lots of amenities around them and the various things that cities offer, 
they will feel like they can do that. But then people can move out and feel like, okay, I don't have to be stuck with like one grocery store and one gas station. There's more things going on out here. It's funny. It's actually, it kind of reminds me of of Tokyo in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. where it's like, when you think of our SkyTrain lines, like when, if anyone who visits Tokyo knows that, you know, you go to the train stations and each area is almost equally cool and exciting in terms of like being amenity rich and unique, right? And these little kind of subculture kind of communities develop around the trains. And maybe we're going to get to a point where you go to the, you know, Brentwood and it's just, I mean, Brentwood's very amenity rich, you know, but every train station kind of develops its own kind of culture and identity around. Well, or when you look at Paris, I'm not trying to be a snob. I lived there when I was like a poor student and, um, (laughs) but they don't have it downtown the way we do, like not a real central, like everything is here. Like there's an area that has more department stores and an area that has a bit more cultural stuff, but you know, there's kind of different things in different parts of the city. And so there is no sense that there's this one center that everyone tries to cluster around. Instead, there's all these different interesting neighborhoods. And right. I think there is a possibility, distinct possibility that Vancouver and other cities will become that, which could be good because then it evens out, you know, some of the insanity of everyone stampeding to be in Kitsilano or... right the West End or, you know, Point Grey or whatever it is. In in terms, so this is, part of the article was trying to trace out these patterns kind of. Mm, trying. Yeah. Succeed, so, it sounds like. No, no. Was nailing it when it came to these patterns. <laughs> no, no, no. My, Rephrase my, that question. No, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm no, kidding. My, my sense of the, of the piece was it, it, a lot of the things that are happening, it's like, we're still in that kind of, there's different scenarios. Oh, what is this yeah. actually going to look like? Hmm. Were there any, maybe we'll put it for, for the listeners who didn't read it or, or, or are able or to read. Memorized yeah, it or are Where able to are read and understand people? English. Can we talk about if there's any kind of newer patterns apart from the one we just talked about that are kind of shorter or longer term that you see? I mean, there are. I'm writing something right now also for BC Business, but it's about, What is really happening with the boomers and their housing? Because, you know, for 20 or more years, we've heard they're all going to cash out at once, move into a retirement home. The real estate market's going to collapse because there's going to be so much housing left. Right. So what's really happening with that? I will not give away the answer right Uh. now. (laughs) You'll have to pay your $1.50 or whatever it is for a copy. But, you know, that is a very interesting trend, what they're deciding to do. One of the interesting things, and I haven't explored this at all, but I'm on this one Facebook site, Vancouver Rentals and Roommates, and it's people constantly advertising for roommates for either their shared houses or their shared three-bedroom Yaletown condos or whatever. So there have been experiments in other cities with like building things that are sort of to serve that group where you have like six large bedrooms, but then a common living room and kitchen, you know, as a kind of congregate living. We haven't seen that here yet in Vancouver, but when I look at the number of people who are sharing those places that were actually meant for family living originally, it suggests that there's a gap in the market for that group because, and there also needs to be some better system because Anyone who shared a house, no, it's very fraught 
because there's one person who's the leaseholder, mm-hmm. but they're not really your landlord. Right. And then the other people are tenants, but they're not really tenants because they don't have a direct relationship with the landlord. So when the leaseholder decides to move out, then the whole arrangement falls apart. And the leaseholder is somehow responsible for collecting rent and yet has no mechanism to enforce it because they're not totally the landlord. So, you know, there's a lot of people living in that kind of very uncertain, somewhat precarious kind of renting situation because they can't even afford the $1,300 a month for, you know, which is the cheapest you can get a one bedroom for in this town, mm-hmm. unless you have connections. So, you know, that's an interesting part of the housing market too, that I think kind of goes ignored because it's not classically renters, not classically home buyers, not classically people living in some kind of care setting or whatever. And they're a not well-served market, I think. Hmm. Interesting. There's been some buildings like that in New York where they're building these kind of apartment buildings and it's six or four or five or whatever giant bedrooms around a common kitchen and living room. And it's like it's purpose-built rental? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You should go look it up if you want the fuller explanation. I can't remember all the details about how it works. But, you know, there's been like things like, oh, you're reinventing the student dormitory. Good for you. You know, (laughs) or you're you're reinventing rooming houses. Rooming houses is what comes to mind. Yeah. I feel like if you were out of university and faced with that prospect, you'd probably be pretty hostile to it or angry at somebody. Yeah, but you don't know. Like for some people, you know. You work in real estate, so you're more used to dealing with people who I want my own space and I'll do whatever it takes, you know, stab my grandmother in the chest, you know, or (laughs) or whatever to get like some housing of my own. But other people are not making that decision. That's something I'm noticing with the millennials. It's like, I don't want to work 40 hours a week and kill myself the way I see all these other people doing. And I'm willing to like rent and rent a small space for the rest of my life. And maybe have more flexibility in what I do. They might change their mind later, but that's where a lot of them are now, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, there could be some innovations in that area. Thinking about, so there's the three the three trends in that article in BC Business. The first, of course, was, and we've talked a bit about it. I feel like on the, there's a Vancouver commercial real estate podcast too. We've talked a lot about industrial space and mm-hmm. and kind of how the reasons why it's kind of accelerated and and how there's no end in sight. We've talked a lot about the trends, you know, the the newer patterns that have emerged in COVID now. You know, one of the things I think some listeners are going to notice is indigenous developers versus developers. Can we just talk about that distinction? And, you know, we've, again, talked about that one area, but it seems like it's, the article suggests, and at least my reading of it, that this is, you know, kind of a, game changer for the city, but also for potentially the housing crisis here in Vancouver? Well, um, in in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, the Squamish own some pieces of land that are exempt from city zoning rules. And Sanok uh, by the Burrard Bridge in Kitsilano is one. They also own land by the Fibs Loop Bus Exchange in North Van, and they're developing that as well. And yeah, they're making decisions about piling in supply and have no illusions that they're doing that for altruistic reasons or trying to save the white settlers from themselves or whatever. 
they must feel that it's a good business move because, you know, as they and others keep saying, we're not doing this as a, you know, charity charity gesture. We're doing this to make money for our people or to provide housing for our people or both. Right. But when you look at Sanok, it's 12 towers. I think they're talking about 6,000 units. Am I right? That rings that? a bell. Or 6,000 yeah. people, yeah. I, something like yeah. that. Anyway, a lot. I mean, I think that's about equivalent to 10 and years of laneway house production. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, and it's, and it's, they're, they're partnered up with West Bank on yeah. that. Like it's, it's not going to be cheap and it's going to be beautiful, right? Like, I mean, if it, Ian Gillespie's involved, Ian, who chooses all his own doorknobs and which ice cream <laughs> manufacturer is going to go into his, you know, hotel, like he's so meticulous and he wants the best. I'd love it if he'd decorate my house, but I wouldn't want the bill. Um, yeah. So it's, I, I think it will be quite spectacular and they say they're going to start construction end of this year or starting next year like they can move very quickly right so you know i haven't done the math to figure out how many units you'd have to bring on on stream in a year to like make a difference mm -hmm. i think it's quite a bit you know it would have to be i don't know 5000 more than usual before you could start you know like knocking down you know improving vacancy rates right, and things right. like that. Because we do, I mean, we do build a lot in Vancouver. I can't remember what the numbers are, but it's it's considerable. And Vancouver still has a very healthy rate of development. You know, people keep thinking Surrey's going to overtake us in two years. Oh, that's another BC business column. But they're not. <laughs> it's, everyone says 2042 is when Surrey will catch up with Vancouver because there's a lot going on here. Right. So... Yeah, to be able to have an impact on prices, both rent and housing, I'm not sure what the number is that you'd have to get to beyond the current level of development, but it's considerable. So it'll be interesting to see if what Sanok does, but they're only doing one tower at right. first, like the 12 aren't all going to be at once. Right. And then the other big Indigenous developments, they're huge. There's Jericho Lands, which um, they're doing another phase of consultation on. There's the Heatherlands, you know, up behind Eric Hamber School in central Vancouver. And then there's the Broadway Willingdon Liquor Distribution Site. And then Slaywatooth and Musqueam, I think, own something over by Canada Way. So that's a lot for sure, but it's going to be built out slowly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's hard to know completely what the impact is. And they are interested in making money too. So they're right. not going to like be rushing to build everything at once and create an oversupply situation that then reduces the value of their assets. Right. So it, it is interesting how much they're yeah. going to bring on and how fast. And, and it's interesting because for all the increase in, well, not increase in density, I guess basically that not following the same guidelines in the city. So uh, just to be clear, only at Sanok and North Van do they not have to follow city city zoning. Everywhere else they do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so Jericho, Heatherlands, Willingdon, liquor distribution, they have to follow those cities zoning rules. Right. Yeah. So it's so it sounds like it's it's an interesting I feel like kits that will have a noticeable mm. impact, at least depending on how quickly it, it rolls out. But for the most part, it's an interesting trend, but it sounds like 
is probably not going to have a huge impact on. I mean, I think it could have some, it could have some because with the best will in the world, a lot of developers who are trying to develop rental in Vancouver are super frustrated. Like Cressy, they told me they have a site, a really nice site at 2nd and Main, right across from that new building that's just gone up. They're literally called 2nd and Main, yeah. Yep. Is, a, is yeah. it that like weird turquoisey thing? Yeah. Um, anyway, they have a site there and they're not building on it because they just feel like they can't get anywhere with the city. Right. So at least this Sanok is going ahead and... Yeah, you know, you're making me realize now I need to sit down and look at the numbers. Like how many rental units typically come on in a year? What would it likely take to make a difference to bump vacancy up X percent? But it does happen. Like New York and Seattle have both had the experience the last five years of bringing on massive amounts of supply and actually seeing rents Rent increases start to slow down or even reverse. But to your earlier point that you know, if there, there's definitely no interest in flooding the market, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's a longer drawn out process in order to maximize profit, it's just interesting to think of how, you know, it will mm-hmm. probably all be. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm kind of an advocate for letting, like making it very easy for small builders to build because they don't do that thing like that wall or Concord Pacific right. or Ani does if we're going to like, stage our development so that we don't flood the market like little builders they just go for the opportunity they see right and um so if they were freed up to do more they actually could potentially flood the market which would i think be good for some people not so good for others but that's an interesting point that's a really interesting point Mm. the the other thing i like when one of the conversations that we had around sanok lens was whether this kind of density would inspire more density maybe with the city just as a gen- general sentiment or the opposite, I guess, <laughs> inspire more nimbyism because it, it almost seems like a pilot kind of study yeah, no, no, in, it's gonna in be... density. Like how is everybody going to react to? I know. And, you know, Americans are fascinated with it. Like the New York Times did a story and various Americans are like, have you seen what they're doing up there? I think it's going to be so interesting, the impact that it has, because If it's successful, they fill it up. There's not traffic jams everywhere and people saying, where are my kids going to go to school and, you know, or or they can't rent it out or whatever. If it works, that'll really tell people something about how much more dense any city could potentially go. And, you know, it's interesting, the whole South Falls Creek thing that's emerged in the news this week about how the city wants to really densify this historic yeah. uh, neighborhood that was developed like in more the than, 70s. More than three times the number of yeah, units, right? three times in the, from 1800 to 6500 or something. So I talked to the planner who was originally involved in parts of it, and she said, 10 years later, we did a survey, and we realized we could have actually gone much denser. But at the time, that was seen as really experimental. Oh, my God, bringing people into the slummy middle of the city. uh, And the West End was seen as maybe not the greatest place. And there was a lot of anxiety about density. Then North Falls Creek got built out. People could see, oh, it actually looks like it kind of worked. And they realized, like, oh, we could have done more at South Falls Creek. So as places get built out with greater density and it 
becomes a functional, attractive, desirable place, then inevitably other planners, other developers say, oh, okay, well, I guess we could try more of this. And this, just to be clear, is, and I know, I think your piece in the Globe and Mail came out like yesterday, the South Falls Creek, this is the city leased land where yeah, thanks there's, for explaining there's that. uh, yeah. there's, but there's a recent push to kind of reinvent that space or build it out. Can well, I... that, that whole, that whole area, South Falls Creek was developed in the seventies. Yes. On cities leased land. It was seen as a way of providing affordable housing and kind of attracting people to come back and live downtown because Vancouver was losing population in the seventies. There was a movement out. And they had just nixed the freeway. And so the feeling was, okay, we've told people we're not going to make it easy for them to drive in here. So we've got to make it easy for them to live here then. So that was developed uh, with the idea that it would be affordable, um, bring people back into the city originally, um, but done at very low density, relatively low density right? uh, compared to what we now see on the other side. And so does that mean when they're, when they're building that out, they're they're looking for, you know, empty parcels of land to build on. Does that mean that when the leases are up, they're going to so, demolish so the and rebuild? To, or? So the plan is to start any building that they do on pieces of empty land around. You know, there's that big berm along 6th Avenue, like by the railroad tracks. And there's a easy park parking garage and there's a gravel lot. By the Olympic right, uh, yeah, um, right. Olympic Village Station. So they've said they'll start on that. Then that will give people who are in the oldest social housing buildings a place to move out to. And then when if when those people are given other places to stay, then you can then take down the oldest social housing. And this would be about 2028, 20, I was told and start to rebuild that but at slightly higher densities, not towers, but slightly higher, you know. And so you move people around within the community as new things get built. But the eventual plan is to replace everything. And then there are some, like, strata freeholds strata, there, and they'd have to well, sort yeah. of buy them out the same way. Well, and way. I think there's a and there's strata leasehold there as well, yeah, right? There's, yeah, there's, and there's like yeah. 20, 40. There too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you'd need to buy those people out sort of in the same way that developers are buying out old right. West End apartment buildings uh, and so, so on. Although the people in False Creek would have less leverage because their leases are coming to I an end. I think they're like 2043. Yeah, uh, so they wouldn't like be able to say, you have to give me double assessed value because the city could say that would be nothing. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I wonder. So the, so the freehold ones will be wound up as well. I guess. Um, I mean, I think if uh, you're going to look at redeveloping that whole area, then then I mean, it's going to depend yeah. on the votes in each one of the strata. Right. Yeah. Organizations. Right. right? And also, so, I guess, if what the what you can build there. Yeah, exactly. Because it's close to the water, you mean? Yeah. Like yeah, just in terms like, of see, does it make sense to yeah. on those, wind on up those strata. actual yeah. freehold ones? There I I'm trying to recall the report. I was fixated on other things, but they did talk about how when they redevelop, they have to take into account sea level change and things like that. Right. For sure. Yeah. You know, just like Olympic Village, it's kind of higher up off the water than places around Granville Island because it accounted for sea level right. change. Which is, I think, what Gil Kelly was talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. When he was 
on the show a while back. Maybe as a yeah. as a final thought and just thinking about uh, about the city. You know, I think we talked before we went live about having Ken Sim on the show, and it sounds like you were at his. Uh, I think there was a his, meal provided. I don't know, shindig. Yeah, you were yeah. at the shindig last night. Yeah, at the Floata. Uh, all the old time political reporters were. Oh my god, I'm having a flashback. We must be having a political campaign because I'm at the Floata. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they said they had 400 people down. They comped it all. Like it was no one paid anything. So it was oh, more how of I, a... How do I know that? Well, I know that. There was lots of food. I saw lots of empty seats. But, uh, you know, it's sort of the first big event of what's going to be a year of campaigning here. Obviously, he's got... Well, we know he has backers. Peter Armstrong, the Rocky Mountaineer founder, has been very involved with Ken Sims' campaign for both this time and last time when he was with the NPA. So there's obviously they've got some money to spend and they seem to be, you know, doing a lot of organizing and work. Like I sat down and talked with people and, you know, this one couple from the Arbutus Club said, oh yeah, you know, he's come and talk to us. He just sits down and we have coffee chats about, you know, the city and stuff like that. And other people I spoke to said, you know, they've had informal meetings with him and he's reached out. So there's a lot of work going on there. Um, also with the other, all the various other parties. I, I know some of us were thinking we're not going to go through again what we did in 2018 when there were like uh, 10 imp- mayoral candidates. Yeah. He didn't understand Sorry. what was going on. <laughs> it's happening again, dears. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, there's sort of four people on what you'd call the center, center right side. And It'll be interesting to see if some of them drop out. And then at the moment, you have Kennedy as the independent. Unclear whether he's going to try and pull a team together or just endorse some other people who are already running and say, these are, you know, this is my team. And then the three parties on the sort of left green progressive side, one city, Cope and Greens. How many candidates are each one of them going to run? You know, because if they run too many, then they just cannibalize each other. So it's a very mucky picture. But I think what everyone agrees is Kennedy is vulnerable. The mayor is vulnerable. He's been an independent working with a four-party, well, four-party and three independents council. He's had trouble getting things done as a result. It would only take about 35% of... Vancouver's small voter turnout to pick the mayor. So there's a chance someone else could come in with that 35%. And I I don't know. I've been saying this to a lot of people. Everyone feels differently about what they want from politics. I realized a long time ago I'm a type A Roman numeral person. But I do feel like there's going to be a certain desire to have a mayor with a defined team where you can go, okay, if we vote for all of these people and they get in, I'll have some sense of what's going on. There's a plan. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it won't be just the roulette wheel spinning every time we go to council. Do you think people miss vision? I have heard people who previously had said, I love Gregor Robertson, say, you know, I'm kind of missing him. (laughs) I I think what they miss is there was a a real clarity to what... Trying not trying trying not to make a pun, but what Vision was doing, whether you liked it or didn't like it, they were very clear. 
about yeah. what they were doing. Right. It was like 80,000 people voted for us. We're doing green. We're doing bike lanes. We're doing this kind of housing. We're doing whatever. And if you don't like it, piss off. Yeah. And there was a certain simplicity to that compared to what happens now where we have counselors who make kind of motions that are just feel good motions, like let's have more sunny days. And then they get out a hundred speakers to say, let's have more sunny days, but that doesn't do anything. And then various people bring forward initiatives to do real stuff, but they can't get agreement on it or their motions all overlap each other. And then housing, every housing development is such a toss up. What's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So I think that the, there are people who they, and it's not just Gregor Roberts, and they kind of long for the Vancouver of either the NPA or Vision, but like one mayor, one party. The cohesiveness almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That would, if there was enough public opposition, might, you know, change direction a little bit, but right. generally you knew where they were going. Yeah. That, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Ken Sim now is has is starting a what he called a movement a, a new yeah. a new mm-hmm. movement i just wonder if it's um i don't know i just thinking How new about is that it? is that what you think <laughs> well no no i'm more i'm more just i feel exactly i was wondering if adam and it, i it felt like he was tapping into that that vision yeah. kind of well the idea of creating a like a unit uh, well that's i mean that's what everyone says you have to do that in vancouver like anyone who thinks that you can come in with a strictly conservative political party that's just like low taxes, crack down on crime, no more bike lanes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. You can't win in Doesn't Vancouver. Work, yeah. Like, look at the provincial and federal mm-hmm. voting patterns. This is a primarily liberal NDP city. So you have to have someone who can capture something of the center. And that's what Vision did, was they got enough left and then, you know, kind of federal liberal kind of support to to carry them. And so, I mean, I think that's what Ken is trying to do more from the right and also Mark Marison with um, Yes Vancouver. But it's a tricky thing to pull off. Mm-hmm. And just saying that you're centrist is actually doesn't always work as you know being in the public eye yourselves like just telling people who you are doesn't always convince them Mm -hmm. so i I, but definitely ken is going for a more centrist like yes i want to clean up the city you know it's going to hell in a handbasket and you know yes i want to keep a lid on taxes but he's also saying sort of progressive or whatever you want to call it, things about housing and about and the environment and stuff like that. Like you can't win in Vancouver saying climate change is a bunch of BS. You just can't, <laughs> period. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. And I think Colleen Hardwick is interesting because she's coming from a very much a we're spending too much the garbage thing again, and so on. She's been kind of not a big proponent of new housing and has raised a lot of questions about whether it's really needed. But if she could come to a more, like add some more centrist planks to her party, there's a chance. But I have no idea how it's all going to play out. Best guess how it plays out, Francis. (laughs) (laughs) 
Dave, why don't you just ask me to give them a letter grade? Because that's my next favorite thing to do. I mean, I think it's going to be narrow either way. And I think it's going to be if someone can just take a few bit more of the center away from Kennedy, that's someone on the right could win. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if we're in our. I feel like we everyone lives in their own little bubble, but I, chamber, I feel like there's yeah. a a lot of discontent right now with Kennedy Stewart, maybe rightly or wrongly, with the counsel he has. But it's like yeah. herding cats. It just feels like rudderless, right? Is how well, it feels. and he's not a person who. I mean, Nancy was an independent with no in Calgary. Right, was an independent with no reliable party. And he did get some criticism for being slow to be able to do certain things, but he didn't have, he, he did really well for several terms. There's the, the current mayor that we have, he doesn't do kind of politics the way others have done. Like, you know, Larry Campbell is the kind of guy before there was a vote, he'd go around to everyone. What's happening? What like are you going to do? Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, and what do I have to give you or how hard do I have to twist your arm to get you to move over to the side I right. want? You know, there are politicians who do that. And, and I've been told And then there's that. political scientists. And then there's people, yeah, who issue statements saying, this is what I'm going to do. Does anyone want to join me? Which is the opposite of that kind of doing your politics before the meeting uh, starts. So I think that there's been frustration with people about just that style of not really figuring out how to forge bonds with other people and, you know, different bonds with different groups depending mm -hmm. on the issue. And mm -hmm. that is not his style. So. Well, fascinating conversation. I, I would Did love I obfuscate to enough? <laughs> Was I vague enough? Please let me know. <laughs> I'm waiting for the report card. That's one paywall I'm willing to uh, get on my credit card for. The other, and I mean, I don't think we're going to touch on it today, but I'm also excited to hear the findings on the wealth transfer because at some point, the transfer of wealth, the money coming oh, from the parents. From the parents oh. And I, I can't wait to read your thoughts on on that as well, because I think that's we're in a fascinating moment here, I think, with um, mm -hmm. millennials getting into the housing market and uh, just even right across North America. I was just listening to something where they were talking about the the three trillion dollars or whatever. Well, and even if they're not giving them money, they're doing things like what we did. And I've seen many other parents do, which is like, here's part of the backyard for the laneway house. Right. Or I'm going to, um, you know, the lawyer that I used, he redid his house to have a duplex plus a laneway so that there could be one unit for him, one unit for one daughter, and then another unit for another daughter. Like, the people who have assets are just, they're able to give their kids so much. Like there is this real concern that there's this incredible like gap growing that, that almost is like the difference between the aristocracy and the peasants in 19th century England or yeah, something like right. that. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, that's to, a good good note to leave on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I? <laughs> cheery, <laughs> well, ambiguous, and cheery. <laughs> well, we always uh, to offset that. We always have the the segment at the end, the five wire, five quick questions. Oh, oh uh, no, I'm so light hearted bad at these. questions. This is the kind of thing I always go. Is this going to be career ending? <laughs> <laughs> No one's no one's been canceled yet for the five wire. Because <laughs> I don't have many boundaries, sadly. 
<laughs> well, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, Get me fired. <laughs> so, so question number one, Francis, is what is your favorite bar or restaurant in the city? Oh, well, my most regular place, my cafeteria, my essential work cafeteria is Sushiyama on Broadway. Um, it's like... I just, whenever I can't make lunch, I go there. They have the best dynamite rolls. They're Korean, but it's fantastic sushi. And uh, I don't like loud bars. So that really limits me. I, I'm, kind of, I'm like, my idea of the perfect bar is like, and again, I don't want you to think I'm too bougie. I did spend my first year of life in a trailer, in a driveway in Regina, but something like the Wedgwood. You know, yeah. like quiet, dark, not too many people all speaking in hushed turn, uh, tones as yeah. they concoct illegal schemes. So. <laughs> uh, well, with uh, with that quiet uh, nature of the bar, maybe this next one won't land. But favorite band or song? Oh, this is a new question. Should have. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, again, I don't listen to a lot of music that much anymore, except when I listen to TV series. And there's a beautiful, beautiful song that's in both Bridgerton and La Ted Lasso by a woman named Celeste. I think it's called. Anyway, I just listened to it the other day and it Celeste. was so beautiful. Hey, I'll, I'll send you what it actually really is. Wow. I, I looked it up, but it was lovely. I like kind of mumblecore kind of stuff, you know, feisty folk music, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So right. yeah. it's definitely <laughs> it's, not going to be Todd Rundgren. Well, Ted Lasso <laughs> is uplifting, if anything, right? Yeah. I feel like that's, is it an uplifting song? It's a bit wistful and sad. Okay. Uh, but uh, that'll yeah. make, that'll make my playlist. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only kind I really like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. life is so sad. Everyone's disappearing. I've lost all my friends. Per perfect time of the year for it, too. No kidding. <laughs> Question number three is, what is one book you would recommend for our listeners? Oh, uh, Connor Doherty's... Um, oh, he's yeah. been on the show. He's been on the show. Oh, the, show. the New I, York Times I, bestseller I, book. I, You know what? I, I've golden, got to read something? it. What, what is it called again? We... You remembered. Well, it's, uh, yeah, Golden. Uh, it's something about Gold, San Golden Francisco. Gate, the yeah. bridge yeah. is a play on something. He's there. only forty-four years old, which makes me just ugh, so. He's also um, an avid skateboarder. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. He, he talked. We about, talked about skateboarding for forty-five minutes, and the book for about five minutes. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a good episode. <laughs> if that didn't sell you on it. Yeah. Anyway, and he just had a feature in the New York Times about um, you know bringing like uh, multi-unit uh, developments into former single family suburban neighborhoods. Anyway, yeah. he's just a brilliant writer who doesn't make, doesn't come to easy conclusions about housing, really describes the complexities from, and again, he goes from kind of individual cases to policy. Yeah. So, I mean, for what we're talking about, I'd say him. You know what, you know what else is so great about that guy is you can tell that he does absolutely nothing he doesn't want to do. Like he's the type of guy that he, he only does stuff he's interested in. Does that right. seem fair? Yeah. Like I, I, that's, that's the, at least that was the vibe I got from him, from talking to him, but. Okay. Well, now I, I'm even more envious. <laughs> <laughs> 
one piece of advice, and I feel like I could almost recall you've answered this one in the past. One piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self. This was oh, I presumably, did this already. You presumably before you got estate. to Paris. Buy, buy, real buy estate. more real estate. Oh, we've got the song. Okay, so last strange. Okay. That will be uh that will be if, if I if I show that to my wife, that will be playing <laughs> yeah, every yeah. time we make that's, a meal. That's, I'll be that's crying never, into never my going on my line. phone again. Yeah. Anyway, my 18-year-old self, I don't know. I feel like I so messed up my entire 20s. It's hard to say which mistake I should have corrected. But weren't you in Paris in your 20s? Yeah, and a commercial fisherman, and oh, yeah, switching majors yeah, yeah. three times, and, uh, you know, kind of blowing through many relationships, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to stick with buy real estate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last but not least, what is something that you've bought for under $1,500 recently that's had a positive impact on your, on your life? Oh, that's good. Because you know what? I think about that a lot. Sometimes you spend a lot of money on something and you go, meh, that did not change my life. <laughs> right. And other times. So I would have said my iPad, except I didn't buy that in the last few months, but my iPad and my Mac laptop, because then I can take it everywhere. But in the last few months, I would say it was, I finally broke down and after two years of pandemic brought bought new runners and went, wow, this is really different when you buy shoes with support. You know, oh, it's yeah. funny. I, uh, <laughs> we, I've been thinking about my runners and they're about 10 years old. And I think well, that's just crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. That's, 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 that's beyond even me. Anyway, I couldn't get over how different it was walking around in shoes that didn't have holes in them and weren't so kind of out of shape that it really just felt like you were walking around on yeah. Loosely attached. It's making me souls. think I should buy some new shoes. This is a it great was... sales pitch for Matt to get new <laughs> shoes. <laughs> anyway, maybe the so, final push. Yeah, yeah, that's all I can think of. I mean, last year it would have been my patio heater, which allowed us to like oh, have many meals so, outside. Oh yeah, see that's you. You use your iPad. I'm just thinking, like your iPad. Do you use it? Just you're taking I notes, sleep with or it. I sleep so you use with it all it. the time. Uh, I it's under my pillow. It's what I wake up with, and it's what I go to sleep to. That, and are you, are you? Is it mostly like for reading news stories and articles online, yeah. or are you? And Netflix, Netflix at night. Yeah. And do you do um, that full Apple subscription service now, where you get the news as well? No. Oh. I don't know about that. Oh. It's... No, because I just, I mostly read Twitter, like, and I follow all the big news outlets, plus. I also feel like it's almost, it's got to be helping very quickly to destroy journalism, because you can get for 15 bucks a month, you can get like the New Yorker. But they must be paying. They have to be paying them something, yeah. but I can't imagine, I don't know. I mean, you can get <laughs> no, I, basically I, the I, Globe I, and Mail, you can yeah. get anything on there. Well, I think that they are paying and I think they're getting more people that way because one of the problems I see is sometimes I want to read an article in the Lexington News Herald for whatever reason or the Financial Times of London. And the only way that you can do it is if you sign up and it's always like $1 for the first six months and then it kicks in and you never remember. And before you know it, there's a $200 charge on yeah, your bill. Right. So to be able to read like widely um, for 15 bucks a month. I think that's actually a really good way to go because no, none of those outlets want to sell one article at a time. Right. 
So this is a way to sell one article at a time, get something from it, but not totally cave in to people who right. only want to buy one well, article. Well, it's 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 an amazing service. You should l- oh. look into it. I don't know. I always kind of felt bad about it, but uh, but I still did it. Uh, it's, but at least you're paying something. It's not right. nothing. So that's a plus, right. I feel like. Yeah. As a final thought, and this is we're just thinking about, we ask this question to every guest. I don't know why it's inspiring me, but I was thinking... Of anything in your life, the Apple Watch has totally transformed my life. The earpods or AirPods have totally transformed my life. And your phone. I think out of the last 20 years, those three things have defined all all Apple Apple products. See, but I had an iPad. This is why I was curious because I had an iPad and it just collected dust on my my dresser for for years. And I don't know where it is now. But you have a massive phone. Like I it's do, a I larger do, uh, screen phone. <laughs> it's basically a small iPad. Yeah. <laughs> I use it for everything. I mean, it depends on when you do your reading during the day. So for me, I, I've typically always done a lot at night. Yeah. And so the iPad is perfect for I that. I also feel like you read a lot more than me online, which is probably a given, you know, yeah. driving a lot. Audiobooks. Yeah. Well, that's great. I yeah. love podcasts. When we travel, we always listen to podcasts nonstop in the car. Oh, yeah? I feel like I'm so much smarter when I come back from the Kootenays than when I left. <laughs> so not our show then. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll leave it there. But, but Francis, how can people learn more about what you're up to and uh, find your articles? Uh, so I try to post on my blog, although I'm super bad at it these days. And uh, on Twitter is the best. Fabula Vancouver is my handle and get a subscription to the globe. And then I keep getting paid. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for coming down. This Francis. Was fun. Was great. This is really a fun conversation. There you have it, folks. Our discussion with legendary journalist, Globe and Mail, writer and BC business writer and at a host of other publications here. I think she teaches as well. Frances Beulah. Always love having Frances on the show. She's very gracious with her time. I think we ran long with that episode, like I said at the, at the intro, but tons of useful information, tons of takeaways. And I always love the five wire with Frances Beulah too, because it's, uh, she's always got great answers. And this time, a song. That as I sit in my car, it's raining out. You know, I kind of, I, I wish I had that track. Oh, well, hey, you do. Because not only did we hear it on the podcast, Francis wrote a few emails to me after. One was entitled, A Few Details. The song was Celeste's Strange. So that the title of the song was Strange by Celeste. And Francis also said, I should have said my real favorite restaurant was Burdock. They really got better during the pandemic, and I had two wonderful, memorable meals there. So Burdock, I can't recall which restaurant she said. Uh, that's all for her second thoughts. But here's another hot tip. I guess we got her thinking. She sent another email saying, thinking about Red Hot the Valley pre-sales. I think that, I wonder if I can share these messages. I don't know. But she she's saying that investors are potentially betting that there will be big demand out there. And we're talking about Surrey. Once the immigrants start coming in again, especially a big influx from India, which is now the main immigrant source for BC. I did a story last winter along those lines with a Surrey realtor talking about prices going up there because that's what's going on. So 
With new immigrants, the Surrey market potentially gets even hotter, according to Francis. Just always, always thoughtful, thoughtful stuff coming yeah. from Francis Buehler. Yeah, and we've talked about that a little bit on the program, and it's surprising to see where the price points are in the valley right now. But I mean, you know, it does make a lot of sense. Another thing that we're kind of watching right now is is the pre-sale market. Like, you know, when you look at these buildings selling out at these astronomical price per square foot prices, you know, you start to wonder at what point, though, does Vancouver and the immediate surrounding areas start to look appealing for new immigrants? Have to uh, snap, snap back. Yeah, exactly. 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 So really useful, thoughtful information from Francis. Really enjoyed that conversation. Matt, what else do we have before we cut for the day? What else do we have? We have the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate live, including the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, which big plug here. Last episode, you were on the call with an investor out of Hong Kong. One of my one of my favorite episodes of the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast came out on Tuesday. Yeah, Matt, actually, we've had a, a ton of really positive feedback about that show. And actually, a really good friend of ours reached out and said, I actually wanted to be Peter Leung when I grew up until I realized he's about the same age as me. So um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't hear that. That's, that's a great yeah, line. Yeah, so pretty, pretty incredible feedback. But if you haven't, if you haven't heard the Peter Leung uh, episode on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, that one floored me. I was kind of walking out of the studio there feeling energized, not so much about my finances, about, but more so where Peter's. I hoped they could get. <laughs> and I, yeah, I've energized around Peter's finances specifically, but he, I'm great to have him on the show. And speaking of someone who is generous with his time, I, I don't think we could have afforded his is the hour we, we held him for. So, well, yeah, no, no, it was a fantastic episode. That's Kokomo right there. So if you haven't listened to the Vancouver commercial real estate podcasts, latest episode, definitely check that out, but back to Vancouver real estate podcast.com, Adam, we're, we're missing the pitch here. Head over to Vancouver real estate podcast.com for things like the live wire. This is our weekly newsletter. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. There's deal of the month. There's pre-sale VIP access for commercial and residential sales, such as assembly that sold out, such as Melrose that sold out stats before anyone else. And of course, we have tried and true private client services. Yeah, Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's the best way to look for real estate. We are constantly updating our past clients, search parameters. People love this way to look at real estate. And especially if you're tech savvy or if you want something that kind of lives in the background of your life and just keeps track of what the market is doing. We've got people that have, you know, six, seven searches set up for various regions around BC. We can set that up for you. And Matt, how can people get in touch with you? They can give me a call at any time, 778-847-2854 or Matt at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. And I guess that's a wrap for the day, Adam, but just thinking about you sitting in a car in the rain waiting for yeah. a client to show up, I might want to remind you again, the song title is Strange and the artist is yeah. Celeste. 
Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm watching Malika, our staging consultant, walk up to the property right now, and she's she's looking out to me, tracks of tears down my face. She can't tell. Hopefully, I think she thinks that it's it's the rain on my windshield. But what she doesn't know is Celeste is blaring, and I'm uh, I'm having a moment. <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. We'll be back next week with eight ways to find the Vancouver deal right now. Stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, hope everyone stays dry. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs>